Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. This is the second episode in a long series on the rise of communism and the reaction of the American church. You're going to want to listen to the first episode for this one to make more sense. It's in your podcast feed right now. This show looks inside the Christian church. And much of what we did in the U.S. in the 1900s was to compensate for the atheism and government ownership of resources in communist countries. This series may not seem directly applicable to your daily life or Christianity, but give it some time. We're telling a big story. Oh, and just a heads up, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about war and murder. You may not want to listen to this with small children, though it won't be graphic. It was the early 1900s, the Industrial Revolution, where new things were being invented all the time. People streamed to cities from the countryside, leaving the farm labor of early generations, seeking a better life. But factories were dangerous places. There were no laws about safety, or about how many hours a person could work, or how old they had to be before they started working there. People were treated like they were disposable. If they got hurt, they weren't your problem as the business owner. It was up to families to carry the burden of the sick or wounded. There just wasn't much of a social safety net to catch people when they fell. Even for the healthy and the young, it could be difficult. There was no minimum wage in the U.S. until 1938. You could get paid very little if factory owners wanted to pay you very little. If everyone paid about the same rate, you were stuck, working very long hours for very little money, doing repetitive, sometimes dangerous work, or else you might not make any money. They also had this problem in Russia, but we had it here, in the United States, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Questions about labor and management were not our own. Much of the world struggled. Dare I say, we still do. The Russian Empire during the reign of the last Tsars was no exception. In our previous episode, we followed the rise of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra. He threw them into a bloody war with Japan that they could not win. His guards shot protesters when they approached his palace. The Romanovs, the last family to reign over Tsarist Russia, succumbed to superstition as their centuries-long dynasty came to a grisly end. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. We ended our previous episode just after we sat down for dinner. We were talking about the Romanovs, so we did the only logical thing. We made Stroganov. You know, Romanov Stroganov. I was joined by my friends Nick and Mark, 
The recipe, by the way, if you want to make the stroganoff, is on our website. You'll hear us eating just a little bit as we start off. When we left our story, Petrograd, the capital, was boiling over. During the midst of this, uh, there's the rise of the Social Democrats, who are like a political party, who split into two parts, the largest being the Bolsheviks. Uh, You guys have probably heard of that. No, I didn't just swear. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, they, they were not angels. So they, they wanted better working conditions for the people and they wanted uh, redistribution of land and stuff like that, uh, which, you know, for your political stance may or may not sound like a great idea, but they were funding their operations by robbing banks. No. Yeah. <laughs> I do the exact same thing. And their leader was Lenin, uh, not John Lennon of the Beatles. Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin. We'll be talking a lot about him in the future. Of course, he would eventually rise to power once the Romanovs fell. Well, um, I'm glad you guys are making puns. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go hide in the Lenin closet. Oh. <laughs> well, a Vladimir pun would make you laugh so much. Vla- glad a mere pun. Oh, okay. <laughs> that one took some time. Sorry. Not only had fractions formed in Russian society, but they gained traction and strongman leaders. People were angry, tired of war, humiliated by the Russo-Japanese debacle, and so they. Then comes World War One, uh, which is you know like they'd been warned like don't get involved in another war. But of course the Germans are right on their border, you know, so they they kind of have to get involved in this war. But the people really didn't want a war. A lot of the people didn't want another war. Which was part of Lenin's platform. No more war. Follow us and we'll negotiate a separate peace apart from the rest of the Allies. And get out of this thing. So, and also World War I was difficult for Alexandra because she was German. Um, So the the Tsarina, the Tsar's wife, was German. So this automatically looks bad. People assume that she's she's with the Germans during World War One. If she was German, surely she was a spy, or trying to destroy Russia so that the Germans could rise to power. Bringing us to a discussion of a man named Nikolasha. To oversimplify it, Nikolasha was in charge of the Russian military. But but here's the thing: like Nikolasha, he's the head of the military. He becomes more popular than the Tsar at this point, and Alexandra does not like that. Um, the Tsarina. First of all, because that, you know, her husband, the Tsar, should be the most popular guy in the country, right? Uh, but Nikolasha is seen as this big, like, powerful military guy, and, and Tsar Nicholas is not. Which is part of how Napoleon came to power in France a hundred years earlier. He was a popular military hero, more popular than the king. Alexandra, the Tsarina, had reason to be concerned. Shouldn't her husband, the Tsar, be the most popular person in the country? Also, Nikolasha did not like Rasputin, who was uh, a, he was like the second coming of that uh, the mystic we talked about earlier. In other words, Rasputin was the second coming of Philippe. Remember from our last episode, the Romanovs, the Tsars, were really into spiritualism, the occult. Philippe, when he left Nikki and Alexandra, had promised them that another guy just like him would come along. Someone to help them out. Rasputin seemed like the fulfillment of Philippe's promise. A spiritual advisor. 
We're going to spend a lot of time on him in our next episode. Until then, all you need to know is that if someone didn't like Rasputin, the friend of the Tsar and Tsarina, Alexandra would not approve of them. Not even if they were experts in their field. Here's something about Alexandra that, uh, that makes you think <laughs> about world history. What do you got? She had, she had a number of weird health problems that kind of came and went with her mood. Um, it was, a lot of it was kind of psychosomatic. Uh, she was treated with a, a number of really bad things. Uh, well, like Nikki, her husband, was treated with cocaine for his colds, which was a common prescription at the time. And then Alexandra was on barbiturates, opium, cocaine, and more. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. So thought we had an opium problem now, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what the, like the, the most powerful woman in their country is on cocaine and barbiturates. Yeah. And and she blamed Nikolasha, the, the head of the military, she blamed the defeats, Russia's defeats, on Nikolasha's hatred of Rasputin, because he's this holy man, supposedly. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. But she blamed the defeats on, on Nikolasha hating Rasputin. Tsar Nicholas was eventually persuaded to lead the military, to take charge in part so he could become more popular with his people, be seen as this strong leader. Surely, Nikolasha was perceived by the public as a war hero, but who is a bigger man than a war hero? The guy overseeing the war hero. Or so he thought. Which again, was not a weird thing because Alexander I had done that to fight Napoleon and others since then had done that. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a weird thing, but the person that he leaves in charge is his wife Alexandra, who is on barbiturates and cocaine. <laughs> Um, she's acting in his stead, and she was suspicious of basically everybody, of the ministers, of the prime minister, of, of the Duma, the legislature. She was suspicious of everybody. And she frequently demanded that they all be replaced. And so there was just this constant turnover of prime ministers and ministers and the Duma. It just constant, because she would write a letter to her husband and be like, these guys gotta go. And then they'd go. And so to fill the place, she was the one in Petrograd. So she's filling the positions while her husband is gone. She's recommending people, but she doesn't know anybody in Petrograd because she believed that the, the, the air in Petrograd was bad and was, was calling her, causing her health to be bad. So she didn't spend time in Petrograd. She didn't know people. So she ends up uh, enlisting the help of some people, including Rasputin, who was a questionable person uh, of the time, uh, a mystic and one of her friends, Anna. And she was also uh, trusted a guy who was a gay prince who'd raped a bunch of bicycle messengers, uh, who was said to have had over a thousand conquests in a year. Pretty bad dude. And so th this is th these are the people who are filling the voids that in, in Russia when, when Tsar Nicholas is out of town. And, and Rasputin was even known to accept bribes for jobs. He would get flat out envelopes of cash for people for jobs. Bad dude. And what sort of jobs would he carry out? No, the, like the, these would be like uh, if somebody wanted to be a minister in the government. Oh, uh, I understand. Yeah. Regular Craigslist lineup, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's bad. Yeah, you probably would do better finding people on Craigslist. Tsar <laughs> Nicholas led the charge on the war front, directing his men into battle. He regularly sent letters to his wife, updating her about the progress of the horrible world war. Very detailed things about, hey, we're gonna send troops over here, we're gonna send troops over there. And he would say, he specifically, don't tell Rasputin 
that I said this. And she would still tell Rasputin, and then he would tell her, like, you should tell your husband to do this. So it, there are some people that suspect that Nikki was, he was acting as, he was a puppet of Alexandra and Rasputin. That maybe Rasputin was the guy behind the scenes, which is hard to, hard to prove. Printing presses had a heyday selling pornographic pamphlets featuring Rasputin and Alexandra as characters, alleging that they were quite a lot more than friends. People are suspecting that while Nikki's away, you know, mm-hmm. bad things are happening. Which none of that was actually ever proven, right? It wasn't substantiated, no. Uh, it wasn't proven, but Rasputin was a known philanderer. Uh, He had a lot of sexual partners. There was even this example of a time when Alexander wanted him investigated to see if these rumors about him were true. So she sends a bunch of people out to them, and they're on a train, and Rasputin ends up accosting a woman in her bed on the train and groping her until she gets free of him. And this is while he's under investigation to find out if he's a pervert. Hmm. And the answer was yes. Sounds like it. And they kept him around. So this is... Really, really bad. Under the sun there, huh? We mm-hmm. see some of that still. Yeah. yeah. Right about here is when Rasputin was murdered. We'll talk about that in our next episode. Again, a lot of people with ties to the government were being killed. He was this powerful symbol of what was wrong with Russia. Then comes February 23rd, 1917, which was International Women's Day. So that was already kind of cool that that was, I didn't know that was a thing so, so long ago. Oh, wow. 1917, but female textile workers went on strike and started demonstrating. The next day on the 24th, poor people stormed the bread shops and stole bread. And then on the 25th, virtually every factory shut down and people started marching. 200,000 people took to the streets in Petrograd. Kind of like an unbelievable number of people. Yeah. Especially considering this is like pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook come meet me in the square. Like, this this happened organically, you know? Nikki's train, he's away from town. He's coming back to town, and his train gets blocked by a bunch of revolutionaries. I totally expected you to say blown up. Yeah. But... Surprise! They have other tricks up there. <laughs> oh, no. They can't just blow people up because they wanted him to abdicate the throne. And so his trains, his, his tracks were blocked, and his generals unanimously urged him to abdicate like the revolutionaries said. And so on March 2nd, 1917, he abdicated, which means that his son, Alexei, the hemophiliac, would then become czar, which was something that Tsar Nicholas did not want. He knew that his son was frail and was not likely to live. Like, hemophiliacs weren't going to live past their 20s back in those days. And so he, he he wanted his son to have as good a life as he could before he died. Tsar Nicholas abdicated not only for himself, but also for Alexei, his son, leaving a grand duke in charge. And can you guess how long he lasted? I'm gonna say two weeks. I'm gonna say two days. You both overshot it, it was one day. Oh Oh, man. Didn't have time to get the business cards printed up. (laughs) So yeah, he abdicates the throne because he, uh, his safety wasn't guaranteed. They're basically like, the people are still murderously angry it's not going to work out. You know, it's, there's, there's no way we can guarantee your safety. Nicholas rejoined his family in Petrograd. But what should they do? Stay in the country, their home, or leave to somewhere that might be safe? However, the kids had measles. It's a weak sauce answer for why you don't run away. If there's a revolution going on, 
get out of town, basically. If, if you're the one that they're revolting against, you know, get out of town. But they didn't do that because the kids had measles um, and because of national pride. And so eventually, it didn't take long for them to not be allowed to leave. They were, they were now prisoners of the state. And so they were exiled to Siberia and put into a house. And then they eventually moved to another house, which was called the House of Special Purposes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a little bit ominous, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Maybe this is a good time to say that if you still got little children listening to this episode, now might be a good time to press pause until you're alone. I won't go into the gruesome details on this podcast episode, but if you're curious about what happened, I've posted a full account on our Patreon website for those who donate a little each month. I'll tread lightly in this version. On October 25th, as part of the October Revolution, if you've ever heard that, Mm -hmm. 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power in Petrograd. And at this point, Vladimir Lenin withdraws Russia from World War I. I say that people were tired of war, but Russia itself was embroiled in a gruesome civil war. The Romanov family stayed in the house of special purpose. Guarded, yes, but also surrounded by seemingly endless space in Siberia. As the Civil War progressed, there were many forces that would benefit from ousting the Bolsheviks and returning to the Romanovs. Not the least of which were the Allies still fighting in World War I. Near the end, the Romanovs could hear the Civil War from their house. Could hear their possible salvation approaching. Lenin had a tough decision to make. Keep the Romanovs alive or kill them. They could follow the model of the French Revolution and at least let the children live. But that could be risky. Children get older. And what would stop them from avenging their parents' deaths? The Civil War raged on. The enemies of the Bolsheviks got closer and closer to the House of Special Purpose. The decision was made. All of the Romanovs were to die. The family gathered up their things, including the jewels which they had sewn into their clothing. They waited in a basement, expecting the van to come and take them away. Meanwhile, the Bolsheviks plotted their attack. Who would shoot who? Some men did not want to kill children. They just didn't have what it took. So they were changed out while the Romanovs waited trapped. Finally, the Bolsheviks descended upon the room. One of them read the charges against the Romanovs, but the family didn't understand. They thought they were being transported. What the man said sounded like a death sentence. The charges were read again. Still, they were confused. The judgment had been handed down. The Romanovs had nowhere to go as the guards opened fire. Truly, world history has been shaped by these events, by what Russia and the USSR would become after the Romanovs. The fall of the Tsars is one of those linchpin moments in history where the entire course of world events takes a sharp turn. This is, of course, a podcast about the Christian church. It's no accident that we're covering this material. The modern church as we know it today is what it is because of Russia and the USSR. As the season continues, we'll see the ways in which the American church shapeshifted to combat communism and its atheistic revolution. While they moved to atheism, we moved towards Christianity. 
While they went towards collectivism, we embraced capitalism, for better or for worse. I hesitate to find a clear takeaway from the story of the Romanovs because I don't want to cheapen history by boiling it down to a three-point sermon. This is just the beginning of a much larger story, one marked with revolution, war, humanity, and the rise of a Christian political movement. I hope you'll join us as we continue to examine this crucial part of what makes us, us. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Special thanks to Nick Starin and Mark Shaver for their help with the stroganoff. They are great friends for letting me do this. And remember, the recipe for our dairy-free stroganoff is available on our website at trucepodcast.com. Truce is a listener-supported show. Yes, we've got ads now, but those are not quite enough to keep the lights on. If you'd like to be a part of this unique thing we're doing here, donate at patreon.com or on PayPal. If you become a patron, you'll be able to listen to a more detailed retelling of the last few moments of the Romanovs. That's at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. You can find my novel, Cradle Robber, on your favorite ebook platform and my movies, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, on Amazon Prime. Some of the books we use for research include A Well-Ordered Thing by Michael B. Gordon and The Romanoffs by Simon Seabag Montefiore. We'll continue this series in our next episode. Subscribe so you'll get every new episode as it's released. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truths. Now, here's, here's a question. We're eating stroganoff and talking about the Russians. Do you think this is actually a Russian dish? I'm going to say it's like Slovenian. Slovenia? Like something like that. I would actually guess it's probably Italian. It is Russian in that, it, well, it was made, it was created by a French chef um, in a Russian cooking competition. Wow. And was so. French chef. Philippe. No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to do everything else. Right.